You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay, we're starting. Here we go. Because we always like to start on time. Okay, good afternoon, and today we're going to talk about, as in this week's Torah reading, we read about the passing of Jacob and the blessing that he gives to his children, so a quick just overview of what the Torah reading is about, and then we'll go into the, the deeper meaning and the esoteric teachings of it. The Torah begins with Vayichi Yaakov, that Yaakov's last uh, few years that he lives in the land of Egypt, at first he calls over his sons, his grandchildren, Yos- uh, the children of Yosef who were born in Egypt, and gives them a blessing. And gives Yosef the, ap- the opportunity on letting them know that he is, so to speak, the one that's going to inherit. And therefore he gets a double portion and both of his children are considered as part of the tribes. After that he calls together all his twelve sons and he gives them a blessing before it passes. And then he gives them his last will and testament that he wants to be buried in the cave of the patriarchs. At that point Jacob passes away. A big... the a whole entire uh, country of Egypt mourns Jacob's passing. This was considered a very time of mourning of the country because when Jacob came, the hunger ceased. So therefore they all idolized Jacob. And because of that reason, Jacob made his son Joseph promise them that he won't be buried in the land of Egypt because he was concerned that they might idolize him. And therefore he said, take me out of here so they shouldn't make me into any type of saint because they were known for idolatry. And with that, Jacob was taken to, after 70 days, he was taken to the land of Israel, to the city of Hebron and buried in the cave of the patriarchs, which we're soon going to talk about at length today. After that, the Torah tells us about the Jewish people continuing to grow in population, Joseph continuing to take care of his brothers and his family, though they thought that now Joseph might want to take revenge on them, because since he no longer, uh, Jacob is no longer there to be able to protect them. But Joseph says, no, I'm here to protect you and your families, and you will live comfortably in the land of Egypt. The Torah continues, and as we conclude the book of Genesis, it concludes by telling us the passing of Joseph, and as the Jewish people continue to prosper and grow in the land of Egypt. And now to the deeper meaning of what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to talk about, as we mentioned, the story where Jacob, before his passing, tells his family, and Joseph especially, where he wants to be buried. There was once this uh, psychiatrist walks into a, doing his daily rounds in the psych ward, and he walks into one of the people that he, very well-known patient, and they're looking around to see about the different patients that they have in their psych ward. And he sees this fellow screaming and going, Diane, where are you? Diane, where are you? Diane, he's keep on, he keeps on calling out this woman's name. So the director of the hospital asks the psychiatrist, What's her issue? What's this guy's issue? Why is he screaming, Diane, Diane, who's Diane? She says, oh, Diane, that was the woman that he wanted to marry. She left, she, you know, she went for somebody else. And therefore, ever since then, it gave him such distraught and he was so upset about it that it caused him to have a nervous breakdown and he's been crazy ever since then. So, they walk into the next room and again, they hear somebody yelling, Diane, Diane, also angry, saying, Diane, where did you do? So he said, what's this guy's problem? What does he have with Diane? And he says, this is the guy that actually married her. <laughs> <laughs> Many times you ask people, what are people most troubled about? You go do a Google search. What is the most searched concept in Google? 
What is the most requested thing that people are looking for? And that's usually self-help. People are always looking to be able to improve, so to speak, spirituality. What did the guy say, the biggest oxymoron is? That you go into the store and you ask the receptionist, where's the self-help desk? Right? <laughs> but the person always self-help is what most people are looking to see. How can I improve my spiritual, my mental status? How can I be able to become a better person? We all, so to speak, expect more about ourselves and therefore we feel we're not living up to the status or the standard that we set for ourselves. I'm not a good enough person. I'm not a good enough this. I'm not a good enough that. Whatever it may be. Why is it? That we're constantly always looking to see what can we do better? How can we become better from the situation? And of course, many times it just stays in a quest and we don't do anything about it. In fact, the first Chabad Rebbe in his magnum opus of the Tanya dedicates two chapters, more than two chapters, but gives a solution, I should say, in two chapters and explains that this idea of a person striving always to look what I need to do, there's two, two reasons why people are always, why people get upset. Two reasons why people are depressed. The Alter Rebbe explains. And both of them have no reason. Both of them are because of self-illusioned issues. Number one, why people usually get depressed is because since they don't have a physical, materialistic things that they need. They're not making a living. They're having a hard time making a living. They can't make ends meet. And therefore, it causes them to be upset and depressed. And therefore, God, therefore you have to have faith in God that God will give you what you need. But there's another reason why people get depressed and probably more. And that is because they feel they can't fulfill their life's mission. They feel like they're always failing spiritually. They feel they haven't lived up to their standard that they're supposed to. And the Al-Tareb in the Fritanya writes that this comes from the evil inclination. And he tells us that the method to be able to overcome this is to have absolute simcha, absolute joy, that the very fact that you can have a relationship with God, that in itself is your job. And you're going to constantly be fighting to be able to make the struggle, to be able to know, to be able to climb spiritually. And therefore, as we're going to explain today, we're going to talk about this idea of understanding and realizing that challenges our life are not what sets us back, is but what actually makes us who we are. And we will examine this from one of the last and final words that Yaakov tells his family in his last will and testament. Yaakov comes together and brings his family together. And this is in Genesis chapter 49. And he starts to explain to them of where he wants to be buried. And he tells them that there's a place called the Cave of the Patriarchs that's in the city of Hebron. And in the Cave of the Patriarchs in the city of Hebron, Abraham buried Sarah, Isaac buried Rebekah, and over there, Leah was buried as well. And he says, that exact place in the Cave of the Patriarchs, that's where I want to go as well. But if you look at the last four words that he says, and over there, I buried Leah. What is he telling us? What's he telling us? What's going on over here? First of all, who is Leah? Who did Jacob want to marry first? It wasn't Leah, it was Rachel. Not only that, you look in the verbiage that Leah uses when she talks about when her children are born, it's all about Reuven. Now maybe my, uh, my husband will see me and he'll come to love me. Shimon, God heard my pleas that my husband will come against me. Levi, upon your love you shall I, now my husband will be connected with me. Continues, each one of her children are named in a way to create a better relationship with her husband. Seemingly, maybe her and Yaakov weren't there. Were they getting along? What's going on over here? 
And now all of a sudden he wants to be buried next to her. But even take it a step further. Think of the scenario that's happening there. Yaakov's about to die. Who's the one that he asked to bury him in the city of Hebron? It's Yosef. Joseph. Who was Joseph's mother? Rachel. Where was Rachel buried? On the side of the road on the way to Jerusalem. Yaakov says, I don't want to be buried on the side of the road on the way to Jerusalem. Therefore, I'm asking you to take me to Hebron and bury me in the cave of the patriarchs. Really? Where was his mother buried? What's going on over here? How does he ask of Yosef? And even though he addresses this in the beginning of the Torah reading, and he says, even though that I buried your mother on the side of the road, but I'm asking you to schlut me from Egypt and bring me to the city of Hebron and bury me in the cave of the patriarchs. But still, why does he have to mention and there I buried Leah? As if, so to speak, to give another uh, line against Joseph. How does that feel towards him? But you may say that actually Yaakov was sensitive about this. Why? Because if you look in the language that Yaakov uses, he said something very interesting. He says, bury me in the cave of the patriarchs. We are there, Sarah. I'm sorry, where there Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, where there Isaac buried Rebekah, his wife, and over there I buried Leah. He doesn't say, I buried Leah, my wife. Maybe the reason why he was not using that terminology was with the sensitivity of Yosef. But on the other hand, you can say that maybe he didn't use that language because until his last day, he didn't want to be with her. He wanted to be with Rachel. Because that was the original person he wanted to be with. And till his last moment, he didn't say my wife. He didn't call her his wife. Maybe what's going on over here. Now let's take this a little bit further just to put things in perspective here. Who was, how old was Joseph when, Leah died, when Rachel died, his mother? So the Seder Hadoris, which is a book that gives us the formation of generations when things come, puts it this way and says that Leah passed away Ten years after Yaakov came to Lavantam to, uh, to the land of Israel. That means, if you put things in perspective, Joseph, at the time of, Le of Rachel's passing, was only about eight years old. That means who brought him up? Leah. Basically, that's who brought him up. It's interesting, also, another little side note, and just to get a little esoteric and uh, spiritual here and Kabbalistic a little bit, Leah is the only one of the matriarchs who there's no mention of her passing in the Torah. It just, the only place where it talks about it is right here when Yaakov says, over there I buried Leah. The Zohar explains, and one can explain, and the Alter Rebbe brings us down in the Lekut Torah. He says, Leah and Rachel, as we're soon going to see, represent different types of elements. Leah represents the covered world while Rachel represents the revealed world. That's why, as we're soon going to analyze a step further, that Rachel, it says that she was beautiful, but it says about Leah that her eyes were sagging, that she was from red from crying. That means deep down, and therefore it doesn't mention anything about Leah, because the connection that Leah had with Rachel, with Yaakov was something which is concealed, while the connection that, Leah, uh, that Rachel had with Yaakov was one of revealed. But that's a separate, it's a whole different uh, discussion and how we see later on the differences of how, if you look at the miracle of Purim, where the God, so to speak, was hidden within the miracle, who was the one that was fighting Haman? Was the children of Rachel. 
while in all the other victories, let's say in the miracle of Hanukkah, who was the one that was fighting the Greeks? Was the children of Le, yeah? But still in all itself, how the tables turn and how this is a whole, just giving you a little tidbit of how deep these things go. But let's go back to our point of here. So the bottom line, the question is, why is it that Yaakov chooses right before his passing to address his children with this really hurtful idea that until the end of his life, he still hasn't committed himself to Leah, seemingly. Or he doesn't mention the concept that he wants to be buried next to Leah, who was the woman that seemingly he didn't want. Why is this? So simply put, many commentaries explain that over here, that what he was really doing over here, he was avoiding a pitfall, an argument, a discussion of a judgment that may have to come later on. He knew that the city of Hebron was a contentious place. He knew that Abraham bought the city of Hebron from the people of Ches. Now, now that there were no, uh, nobody, only one place left over there, there might come a fight. The people of Ches may come along and say, hey, this is our adjacent property, it belongs to us, who gives you the right to bury somebody here? So what does Yaakov say? Abraham already buried somebody there, Rebe- uh, Isaac already buried, this is a family plot, you can't hold us back. Okay, so the people of Ches he puts to the side. But he got another problem, Ace of his brother. Ace of his brother can actually come and argue and say, hey, Yaakov got his plot. Now that's where Leah is buried, I'm supposed to get the other plot. Now, this was not just some type of far-off thinking. It is something that actually happened. At the end of the Torah reading, when the Jewish people come to the city of Hebron and they want to bury Yaakov, Esav comes along and tries to stop and says, Hey, he buried Leah there, I get the other spot. So they said, Excuse me, sir, Esav, you sold the right of the firstborn. That means you sold your right to the family plot. It belongs to Yaakov. He says, Show me a document. Naphtali was going to run back to Egypt to bring the document. Meanwhile, Dun had a son. Dun had a son. His name was Chushim. He was deaf. He didn't know what was going on. And he's sitting over there and he sees his father's funeral, his grandfather's funeral is being held up. And he asks him, what's going on over here? The sign language then wasn't that perfect. And they show that this was the guy that's holding it up. He says, this guy is stopping and he took a knife, chopped his head off. And in fact, it says that his head went rolling in and all the way in to the right by the feet of, J- of Isaac. That's where Esau said buried. But the bottom is Esau, Jacob, Jacob's brother. That's how he died. And that's why, if you recall, in a few weeks ago in the Torah reading, Rebecca said, I don't want to lose both of them at the same day. She actually alluded to something that both of them would be buried in, on the same day. But what we see over here is something very interesting. That Yaakov knew, foresaw that this was going to happen. So what did he do? He said, very simple. I'm just preparing the ground for you. I can tell you that I purchased this land, belongs to our family, rightfully so, Abraham bought it from the people of Ches. Esau is going to come and complain and say he has the right to be able to be buried there. You show him the paper that we were the firstborn. And therefore he told them, that's why he gave them the whole history of who was buried there. And that's why he told them that he buried Leah there, that I had full right to bury Leah there. And I also have the full right to be buried there myself. That is the simple interpretation of why he says it. But now let's go a little step further. And of course, we like to dig a little bit deeper into the spiritual and esoteric explanation, especially to find its contemporary relevance in our day-to-day life. And over here, we can say something fascinating, that Yaakov came to a realization at the end of his life 
that he didn't understand or appreciate until he saw all his children standing around his deathbed. What happened? Yaakov sees all his children standing around him, 12 of the tribes, beautiful, holy, righteous people. Something, he came to a realization, my father didn't have this, my grandfather didn't have this. My father had me, Jacob, and had my brother Esau. My grandfather had Isaac and had Ishmael. Who has all of his 12 children standing around? Perfect. At this moment, he understood that the miraculous event that happened to him, what was the secret of the success of the continuity of the Jewish people? What was the secret that he had, the secret ingredient that made that all of his children were righteous? All of his children were clean of sin. Who gave that to the family? Was Leah. Majority of the children were hers. But she was the one that lived the longest and brought up the family. But not only that, that's not only that's in the practical. But in the, metaf- in the spiritual sense, the energy, the idea of what Leah was, is what kept the family together and kept them all righteous. What does this mean? And to be able to understand this, we go back to what we spoke about in the beginning, a few weeks ago, and we look back into the story and the convoluted story of what happened to Jacob when he married his wives. And how all of a sudden, as we're going to see, that Jacob throughout his life had a target, so to speak, wanted to be with Rachel, and again and again and again, that opportunity is taken from him. As much as he tries, the more the goalpost is moved. The more he tries to get closer to Rachel, the further she comes from him. Let's take from the beginning. Let's start the story going back a few weeks ago, and we'll see. So Yaakov comes to Lavan. He's running away from his brother Esau. Who's the first one that he meets? He meets Rachel. He sees Rachel. He falls love at first sight. Not only can you say that he sees love at first sight, but he knows that he wants to marry Rachel, even though Rachel is the younger one. Lavan has two daughters. Lavan tells him, I'm sorry, Charlie, in our city, in our country, we don't give the younger one before the older one. But of course, Lavan didn't tell it to him beforehand. And he plays the trick on Yaakov. Now, what happens when he plays the trick on Yaakov? Yaakov wasn't foolish. Rachel knew that, this is, that Lavan's a trickster. He's not the honest guy in the block. And therefore, when he already made the agreement with Yaakov, with Lavan, that he's going to marry Rachel, Yaakov made a deal with Rachel and said, I'm going to make special signs and secrets to make sure it's you. And he made special signs and secrets with her to make sure that it's Rachel and he doesn't get tricked with Leah. But what happens is Rachel sees that her daughter's, his sister, her sister's going to get embarrassed. She says, I cannot allow my sister to be embarrassed. So I'm going to give her the signs. I'm going to give her the secret. And what happens? He ends up marrying Rachel. When he comes to a complaint to Lavan and he asks Lavan, what did you do? Lavan says, excuse me. We don't marry the younger one before the older one. Now let me ask you a question. Don't you think Jacob didn't think of that? How is he marrying Rachel before Leah? Is that right? Where is his menschlichkeit? Where does he come along and say, how can he go and take the younger one before the older one? How come Jacob didn't think of that? Why didn't Jacob say, one second, maybe I should marry Leah first? Why, just because he saw Leah? Just because he saw Rachel? Are we talking about simple people that their emotions got over them and they fell apart with any type of intellect or menschlichkeit? Jacob was a nice guy. Why would he just sit, lay, let Leah sit by the wayside and just get him to become spinster? Wasn't she supposed to marry Asa? Ah, so therefore one of the commentaries explain that actually 
Two reasons. The Orachayim HaKadr says, he did care about Leah. But, there's a, if the father didn't mind to give the younger one before the old one, because he did agree, Lavan did agree, he supposed that this was an agreement in the family, and the family didn't mind if the younger one goes before the older one. That means as long as the older one agrees, what's the problem? He's not offending anybody. The Cheskuni, which is another commentary, explains that in fact Yaakov was careful not to marry Leah. And he didn't want to marry Leah. Why? Because he knew that Leah belongs to Esau. So he cared for his brother. And he knew from the time that when he was born, people would say the older one to the older one and the younger one to the younger one. That means the older brother to the older sister. Because Lavan and Rivka were brothers and sisters. And therefore they believed that the older one goes to the young, older one, the younger one goes to the younger one. So in his mind, he wasn't even destined to be for Leah, if you want to give that. So that's round one. He tries to get Rachel, it's taken away from him, he gets Leah instead. Even with all his pre-active planning, it didn't help. Let's go round two. Round two after Yaakov finds out that he was cheated. So instead of saying, you know what? I'm a Jew, I believe everything's from heaven. Which even Lavan and Pesua when Rivka came along and Eliezer wanted to take Rivka, what do they say? It must be destined from God that she should be married to him. That's not what Yaakov says. I didn't get Rachel, I'll work again for another seven years to get Rachel. Why doesn't just accept the fate? This is what it is. He was supposed to marry her, move on. Instead, what does he do? He works for another seven years marries a second sister, which even after the giving of the Torah, marrying two sisters would be a forbidden against Jewish law. But again, because of his love that he has for Rachel, he decides that he's going to work seven years, another seven years for her. But guess what? What happens? He marries Rachel, and he waits seven years, and she still doesn't have children. Leah, meanwhile, has one child, a second child, a third child, a fourth child, and meanwhile, Rachel has no children. Even when Rachel finally has the children after seven years, after giving birth to the second child, she dies. She doesn't have the ability even to bring up the children. And if we look over here, the third round, as again we see, what's the third round? What does he want to do? Where is Rachel buried? Rachel's buried on the side of the road. She's not buried in the cave of the patriarchs. She's buried on the side of the road and she's still there and for the last 3,500 years, who is Yaakov buried next to? Leah. So we see over here that every single time in Yaakov's life where he proposed or tried to be able to be together with Rachel, it was pushed away and he got Leah instead. So the question is, number one, why did Yaakov so, was so stubbornly and so enthused and so forced, so to speak, so stubborn, wanted to get Rachel? But it seems like the more stubborn he was to have Rachel, the more God said, sorry, you're not getting her. And moved away and gave Leah in there. And the simple explanation is something that somebody can give a very simple explanation. Well, it says in the Torah, very simply, Rachel looked beautiful and Leah didn't. Leah had very teary eyes. Well, Rachel, the Torah describes, she was beautiful on the outside, beautiful on the inside. So one can say, hmm? Maybe he just liked her looks and this is why he kept on going after her and do whatever he can until he gets her. But we know very clearly that Yaakov wasn't a person that was going after physical looks. And whenever the Torah tells us something beautiful, it doesn't just mean beauty and physique. It doesn't mean beautiful in image, but it's referring to their spiritual image. Like the Talmud tells us a fascinating story. Rebbe Lezer, 
was once sick. One of the great Talmudic scholars was once on his deathbed sick. His student, Rabbi Yechanan, came to visit him. And when Rabbi Yechanan came, he saw fire come down on the beauty, because it says Rabbi Yechanan was the most beautiful individual. As we discussed, a different story, a different time, Rish Lakish, who later became his brother-in-law, saw him, and because of that, he repented. It says Rabbi Yechanan's beauty was like the beauty of Yaakov, our forefather, who was like the beauty of the first man. And he started crying, and he asked Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Yechanan asked his teacher, Rabbi Lazar, why are you crying? So Rabbi Lazar said, All right, Rabbi Yechanan asked him, Are you crying because I didn't study Torah hard enough? It says even one that studies a little studies a lot, this gets the reward. He says, Are you studying, are you crying because you didn't have enough material goods? Don't you realize that every, not every person is able to get both the material in this world and in the world to come? So I asked him, are you t- crying because of some loss of life? He said, Yechanan took out the bone that he would carry from his son that he passed. Ten children he lost in his life. And he says, this is my reminder, why are you crying? Rabbi Lazar says, no, I'm crying about your beauty. You're this beautiful person and eventually will be buried in the ground to become the dust of the ground. Rabbi Yechanan says, if that's why you're crying then that's good reason to cry, and they both cry together. What are they crying about? Beauty? Physique? Physical? What were they into the magazines of who's going to be the person of the year? What were they? They were Miss USA. What were they were crying about? What were they what were bothering them? How is it possible that over here they're not crying about the Torah they learned, they're not crying about the physical needs, they're not crying about tragic events in life, they're crying about beauty. It's because the beauty that they're referring to over here is the beauty of Torah. When a person's beautiful, when the Torah uses a terminology of beauty, when the Talmud uses a terminology of beauty, it's using a terminology of completion. When a person sees wholesomeness, you have everything. The good is just all-encompassing that it has a mirror effect onto who you look at that person. How many times have you heard people say, wow, the Rebbe's piercing blue eyes is what changed my life? Or the, the it's what the blue eyes is what they liked. It's the inner core of the individual that's expressed by the beauty. There's even a story told about the previous Rebbe, that the previous Rebbe was, um, when he was a young child, was laying in a bed, you know, the little crib, where the father, the Rebbe Rashab, was studying with somebody on the side. And all of a sudden, he looked at him and he saw beauty radiating from his face, and he said, one who has a beautiful face, you see the radiance coming from them showing on the cleanliness that inside it's beautiful as well. And he said, I want to go over and he wanted to give him a kiss. He says, instead, I'll give him a chassidish in kush. And he said a discourse in honor of him. But the concept is that when we talk about beauty, going back to Rachel, to Rachel, is that the beauty that the Torah is ter- talking about over here is a person who is beautiful inside and out, meaning her spiritual physique was complete. She was righteous as you can get. Look at Rachel. She was a woman who was able to marry Yaakov, cut and clean. She had a way, a plan. And instead, she gave those secrets to her sister Leah. She gave up something of herself to give to somebody else. The most righteous you can think about. When we talk about the beauty here of Rachel, she was beautiful spiritually. No blemishes. Leah, on the other hand, Leah was a person who wasn't so beautiful. What does this mean? It's in the words that you can see her eyes was full of tears. What is it telling us? 
What do you mean? The Torah is coming to tell me that Leia wasn't nice? You think the Torah is going to tell us negative? The Torah won't talk about negatively about an animal. It's going to tell us negatively about one of the matriarchs of the Jewish people. But in fact, the Torah is telling us that Leia was a person. What are the eyes? What are tears? Tears are when you're working for something, working hard, showing a struggle, on a mission. Leia understood and Leia heard that everybody was saying she's going to have to marry Asaph, the older daughter to the older child. And because of that, she was crying. She was looking away to repent, to be able to merit that she would either change Asaph or she can change. If we want to put it into simple words, we can say that Rachel was the tzaddikah, was the righteous one from birth and nothing ever wrong. While Leah was the Baal's truva, she was the repentant, the penitent. Rachel, Rachel was the one who always saw good and she was just receiving. She was that beautiful vessel of just collecting all the beauty. While on the other hand, Rachel was the one who had to deal with the challenges in life, deal with the struggles, and every single day she was creating a new vessel, a new beauty. Rachel was beautiful. And every single day, Leah was waking up and saying, how can I make myself even more beautiful? Leah was working while Rachel was automatic, that shine. And over here we see the debate, the struggle that Yaakov had with God. What did Yaakov say? Yaakov says, I'm a complete person. Yaakov is called a Ishtam, a person who sat and studied Torah. He loved spirituality. He had nothing to do with materialism. He tells God, I want to have perfect children. And if I want perfect children, who do I marry? The perfect wife. A wife who has no flaws. Rachel is a woman who has no flaws. Rachel is an actual perfect individual who is a righteous. And therefore, I only want righteousness. That's what I want. I want children of righteousness. What does God tell them? If I wanted a world of only righteous people, I don't need people. I don't have to create a world. I have angels. I want a world where there are people that have challenges. I want a world where people that have struggles. And not only with their struggles, but they overcome their struggles. And who is that? That's Leah. That is a person of struggles. And therefore, there's he created that he should always have the wife. The wife that, you're gonna, that has the difficulties. Who is in this world creating every single day, creating a new tapestry, creating a new map, creating a new, creating a new challenge that she overcomes. They are not just going to have an easy, automatic path, right, just come that way, but they're going to see their challenges in front of them, overcome them, and become better because of it. That's what Leia is all about. They're going to create their own path, not wait for somebody else's path. Let's see this in the next generation. That's actually what happened. Look at Rachel's children. Rachel's children was Yosef. Yosef is one of the only people in the Torah who's called Hatzadik, the righteous. Never did anything wrong. No flaws in him. No matter what the challenge was, he was thrown into a ditch. He made the best out of it. Ended up in Egypt. Made the best out of it. Wherever he was, he was successful. God was with him. No matter what happened. Even when he was seduced by the wife of Potiphar, he didn't fall for it. On the other hand, and as well as Binyamin. Binyamin is one of the four people who the Talmud mentions that the only reason why they died is because it was a sin in the tree of knowledge. Other words, they were so perfect, they had no sins. The only reason why they died was because of the sin of the tree of knowledge. Otherwise, they were so perfect, they had no sins whatsoever. Binyamin was the most perfect, flawless individual, one of the four people in the history. 
That means Rachel's children, as she, was, as we call, beautiful in and out, meaning that they were spiritually perfect. Zero challenges or struggles. They were just rode their way to perfection. Leah, on the other end, look at her children. Ruvain gets angry. Moves the beds, gets the struggles, he has to go and repent for it. Shimon and Levi get yelled at for what they did with the people of Shechem. Yehuda has this whole story with Tamar. That he was the one, as we talk about the story of Yehuda, Yehuda was the one who, as you know, the story we read about a few weeks ago, Tamar, he had an affair with her, he didn't know who she was, and she was about to be killed because of it. He could have went to sleep, nobody would have known that he was the father of these children. Nobody would have known. He is the only one that knew. She said, she sent the signet ring and stick and said, whoever signet ring and stick this is, is the father. He's the only one that knew. Not even his best friend. Nobody knew. He could have went to sleep quietly. But Yehuda was a mensch. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm going to own up to my sins. I made a mistake. I'll say what I did. He was a person who had struggles, but he stood up to his struggles. He was able to understand them, overcome them, and create a new path because of it. Where did Ruhuvein, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, these individuals, where they get the strength that they are able to stand up and recognize what they did wrong? They are able to say, I'm not perfect, I have made mistakes, I'm fallible, and because of that, I can become better. We fall down and we stand up. But as long as we stand up, yes, we have our failings. That's from the people of Leah, the children of Leah. Their cousins, the children of Rachel, those are God's perfect gifts. Those are the ones that have no, those have no uh, mistakes, they have no problems, they are just perfect right to perfection. But who are the ones that can take the, the sour and turn it into sweet? Who are the ones that transform a challenge into a beautiful path and a beautiful passion? Those are the children of Leah. The children of Rachel automatically are sweet. They don't even know what it means not to be sweet. They can't even appreciate a challenge. The ones that have the challenges and have transformed and created perfection. Those were the people of children of Leah. There's a story told about a fellow Jew who comes to the Rebbe. And this Jew comes into the Rebbe and starts complaining about why he has to constantly struggle in his spiritual connection with God. It's a struggle every single day. He doesn't want to daven, he has to daven. Every single day, he doesn't want to learn. Why does he always have to struggle? Why can't things just come easy? I want to be spiritually connected. I want to be able divinely connected. Why does it have to be a struggle? Why do I have to constantly fight with my evil inclination? I'm sure many of us ask this question. Why does everything have to be so difficult? I'm not talking about the physical parts of life. The spiritual part of life. Every single time I have a good resolution, that's it. I'm going to come to show, boom! I have 17 excuses that throw me out. The, my evil inclination is so creative that even when I never thought I could have an excuse, it makes an excuse. The Rebbe asks the fellow and says, what do you do for a living? So the guy says, I do high-end work. He says, what kind of high-end work? He says, I sell high-end art for millions of dollars to families that want beautiful art, hanging originals. I get them the high-end uh, high art. So the Rebbe asks him, can you tell me a piece that you... Tell me a little bit about your business. Tell me a piece you just recently sold. So he says, I sold a piece which was called Twilight. And in the piece, there's a little boy and a little girl walking on a beach in the twilight. 
says, how much did it sell for? He says, oh, it sold for about $10 million. The Rebbe says, I don't understand. You can get a photographer, take a little boy and a girl, let them stand by twilight, take a picture, then you can get it for less than a dollar. Why is this less than, why is this for $10 million when I can make the exact same, and not only that, the twilight will be exactly what the twilight is. The boy and girl will be exact. And over here you're going leaving it to somebody's imagination. The answer is, the fellow answers, nobody wants a perfect picture. They want the creativity of the artist. The reason why they're paying so much art is because they want this artist's influence in the picture. The Rebbe says, listen to what you're saying. If people don't want perfection because they want to see the creativity of the human being, that's exactly what God wants. If God wanted perfect, then he doesn't need you. The reason why God created you was because you're not perfect. And he wants that struggle. And he wants you to overcome that struggle. And he wants you to say, you got to struggle. Yes, you have 17 excuses. And you're going to be creative to find one excuse that's going to answer all of them and tell the evil inclination where to go. This is what God wants. If God wanted perfect, he didn't need you. Perfect he has without you. He created specifically the human being, that the human being has problems, has fall- has, is fallible, and has uh, issues, and has struggles. But it, notwithstanding the struggles, they're able to create a beautiful path on their own. This is exactly what happened when Binyamin was taken. Even though Yehuda says, I was the one that had to deal with the selling of Joseph. But I'm going to stand up today and protect my younger brother. I'm not going to allow him to be sold. Yes, this Yehuda, who learned from his mother, we make mistakes. I made a mistake, I sold Yosef, but I'm not going to learn from the same mistake twice. And therefore, right now, I'm going to stand up and protect Binyamin and bring him home no matter what it takes. He doesn't say, oh, because I made a mistake once, therefore I'll do it again. He learned from his mistakes. He might not be righteous. I've done mistakes, but I learned from them. This is also when we talk about in serving God, there are two ways of serving God. There's serving God that comes from a righteous path. A serving God which understanding, and that's why there are the 12 tribes, that each one of them teaches us. Rachel teaches us the way we serve God, like a righteous person without any mistake, so to speak, direct, having that absolute connection, while Leah teaches us the ability of Baal Teshuvah, the penitent. But what was Yaakov? Yaakov loved Rachel from Leah. He didn't want to struggle. He wanted, I want Rachel, I want perfection. But now, when Yaakov sees all those kids standing around his bed, all standing in one, and he sees something, the impossible, he sees that I have merited to something not my father or my grandfather had. And he sees here are his children who just 20 years ago wanted to kill each other, more than 20, 30 years ago wanted to kill each other. They were willing to take Yosef and throw him into a ditch and kill him. And now they're standing like one together. Where did that come from? Who gave them the ability to recognize, to reconcile? To overcome a challenge that even though they didn't get along, now they do. That came from Leah. Who gave them the ability to forgive? That came from Leah. That didn't come from Rachel. The very fact that they have the opportunity to see what's right came from Rachel. But to be able to deal with the struggle, that came from Leah. Who gave them the ability to take a place of Egypt and learn in the yeshiva, take the disgusting land and be able to transform it? That came from Leah. As we know that in everything that exists in this world, as the Altarebbe discusses, as we mentioned before in the Tanya, there are two tracks how we can serve God. 
a track of taking everything we see and transforming it into light, that is the track of a tzaddik. He doesn't even see the struggle of the evil. He doesn't see the struggle of the evil inclination because he fully transformed his evil inclination to a godly inclination. The penitent, however, the bainani, the average person, is dealing with the struggles of the, of the uh, evil inclination. So what does he do? He's constantly fighting, but he's able to subdue it. And that's where God be able to create, that's what makes the beauty. Take, for example, the Alter Rebbe explains that in a, we all understand food very well. There are sweet food. You get a Danish, a cheese Danish. It tastes good. How come you never have to put salt on a cheese Danish? You never put pepper on a cheese Danish. Because a sweet food is sweet. Everybody agrees something is sweet. And you enjoy it. Besides a diabetic. But everybody agrees that it's a good thing. You take a soup. All of a sudden, you're putting salt. You're putting pepper. You're putting garlic. You're putting spices. Eat salt on its own. Couldn't touch it. Pepper on its own. Couldn't touch it. But when you put it into the food, automatically it makes the food better. This is what the Alter Rebbe says. Salt on its own, the struggle on its own is difficult. It doesn't taste good. But I put it in my food, I make it part of who I am, and I ruin, I change it, I transform it, I subdue it. I take the food already, and that's a food which doesn't have seemingly a taste, I subdue it. And I subdue it with that challenge. Then all of a sudden it's beautiful to eat. And that's what the penitent does. This is seen within the grandchildren of David even more so. Grandchildren of Leah and Rachel as well. Take for example the first two kings that the Jewish people had. The first king was King Saul, the second king was King David. King Saul, the Talmud says, or the prophets say, He was absolute righteous. At age 20 there was nobody like him in righteousness. He never sinned in his life. All of a sudden he comes and he makes a mistake and he kill, and he doesn't kill Amalek the way God told him to do, the way Samuel the prophet said. And Samuel the prophet rebukes him. What was the one thing that King Saul couldn't say? I made a mistake. The Talmud says that in fact if you look at the sin that King David did and the sin that King Saul did, King Saul's was probably not as bad. But what was the problem? King Saul couldn't get himself to say I made a mistake. He came from Rachel. He's perfect. He doesn't know anything but perfection. On the other hand, King David, who made a mistake. But what was the first thing he told the prophet? I made a mistake. And he made a whole psalm talking about how he has to repent and he regrets his mistake all the days of his life. King David recognized that we are fallible. We make mistakes. But what's the point of our evil inclination? To subdue it, to fight it, to overcome the struggle, to stand up from our mistakes. And that's where he was the king for eternity. His children are the ones that come from king. But because he had the courage to stand up and say, I made a mistake. He did not lose the kingdom while King Saul lost the kingdom from his family because he didn't have that ability to say, I made a mistake. He didn't have that strength and courage to overcome his struggle because he didn't know what a struggle looks like. He was a person that was born with perfection. From beginning to end, he was always perfect. So now when all of a sudden he got a bump in the road, he didn't know how to deal with it. Excuse me. Let me just finish the point, okay? Take this a little bit further. In the history of the Jewish people, we see the same exact thing. The Jewish people, if we look, the first Jew to be able to have any rule, any power, was from Joseph. Joseph was the one, however, to be the king. But who is the one that's going to be, as we mentioned already last week, to be the king for eternity? is from Yehuda. Because we can't live in a life of perfection. 
in order to be able to have an enduring reality of the Jewish people, it has to come from King David. Because King David was a person who recognized his mistakes. He comes from Leah the penitent because we live in a life where we are fallible. We live in a life where we do struggle. While it's beautiful, and as the words of the Torah, it's beautiful, perfection is beautiful, righteousness is beautiful, Yosef is beautiful, that is the ideal where we all strive to be, but the reality is we're not there yet. And in order for something to be enduring, and the way Judaism is enduring, and the way we are able to be able to go on from one generation to the next, is because we have that ability to be able to overcome struggle, we have the ability to be a penitent. And therefore, as it says, in the time of the coming of Mashiach, when Mashiach will come, Ein ben David ba, that Mashiach is only going to come after everybody does teshuva, everybody realizes that they're a penitent. Everybody realizes that we have a struggle. Nobody is perfect. We all have our issues. We all have our struggles. We all have our ups and downs. The question is how we react to them. Leah taught us how to react to them. Leah taught us that if you want to be a Jew, you want to overcome your struggles. Recognize, yes, you have struggles and you can overcome them. She had her struggles. She was crying because she was constantly doing tshuva. She constantly realized it's a battle. You don't have to fit into somebody else's box. You have to create your own box. You don't have to fit somebody else's path. You have to create your own path. And when we create our own path to connect to God, creating our own avenue to fight our evil inclination, we are putting salt and pepper in that soup, in that beautiful dish, that we're creating a new dish, a new kind of dish. And that kind of dish is the one that God is waiting for us to be able to bring the world to perfection, the ultimate perfection with the coming of Mashiach. What did you want to ask? 